We're moving into another stop that uh, we're taking on this tour to the city of Corinth in our Hemi Challenger. And we're looking at different characteristics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus as each stop defines that experience. And we're moving into um, a, a territory where our identity, who we are in Christ, is a significant part of that journey. So before we move into describing that, I'd like to just begin this, uh, this part of the, of, of the trip with a word of prayer. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, I know you're working in every heart in this room, that you allow circumstances and relationships and just our progress through time on the timeline as a means by which you impress upon us how you're working in the vast array of experiences in life. Lord, I know that in the lives of everyone here, you are transforming us from who we were to who we are now becoming in Jesus. And in principle, that's already been settled for every life here. Help us, Father, as we take this ride together to be able to walk into those realities that you've set into place, that you've given us to discover and to bring to bear upon our own lives and walk. Lord, at the ground level, there are those who are here with a lot of struggles, turmoil, anxiety, perhaps even some chaos. And we know that you are the one who, in the very beginning, brought order out of chaos. And your son orders everything together for a purpose. And so help us, Father, to see how you're working as you change and mold us. Bless this series as we go through it. Open every heart here to the things that you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Now some of you may be thinking, why in the world are you using a Hemi Challenger convertible for a series on, 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 on 2 Corinthians? And I guess I've had to ask myself that a couple of times too. But the reality is, uh, it, it, it fits in a lot of ways. Uh, for starters, does anybody remember their first car? What did you have, Robin? I had a VW Bug. VW Bug. That's a pretty awesome start right out of the gate, by the way. It's like the Flintstone car, which means that it had holes in the floorboard. Okay. All right. Well, that's one way to get it going, for sure. Who else? I'm just curious. Kathy? Wow, man, right out the gate, GTO. You must be a trust baby or something. Your parents must be rich. Oh, boy, it was a, okay, it's a co-op. Yes. Okay, gotcha. Anybody else? Yeah, what's that? Ford Tempo. Ford Tempo. Now you're moving into territory where I'm kind of going. Not to, not to downgrade the car, because it can't be as bad as the one I'm getting ready to tell you about. <laughs> Anyone else? Susie? Ford Fairlane. Ford Fairlane. Sounds like a movie from the 80s. <laughs> okay, but yeah, we'll leave it at that. Go watch the movie. Um, Anybody else? I saw a hand back there. I need to know. Yes. Kathy? Rambler American. Rambler American. Does anybody know what she's talking about? Okay. Chuck does. He's probably seen a few in the shop. Okay. My first car, 
71, which was an awesome year for muscle cars and everything cool along those lines, especially Hemi Challengers. 1971, get this, Ford Pinto. <laughs> you know, with the gas tank in the back that explodes? Thank the Lord nobody smashed into me. I wouldn't be here telling you this. And I had this Pinto as my first drive. It had a four-speed, and it would go a top speed of 45 miles an hour. Meanwhile, I had some friends who had, one of them of which had a Hemi Challenger. And I thought, one of these days, this Pinto is going to be a Hemi Challenger. I could only wish that I could go through that kind of a transformation and enjoy life like they obviously are enjoying life. Now, that's kind of the high school mind at work, for sure, and maybe even the 55-year-old mind at work, for that matter. But the truth is, there's something about a Ford Pinto, when you line it up beside a Hemi Challenger, where you're like, that's the worst, and that's the best. Now, when God looks at us, in a lot of ways, by comparison, even though we're made in His image, we pretty much have a lot of characteristics of the Ford Pinto. Not really that great. And yet, when Jesus decided that He was going to redeem everything and make our lives what they needed to be, he had this vision that we would not only be lost souls that were destined for, you know, chaos and hell, but rather we could become sons and daughters of the king himself. And our identity would go through such a transformation that when people looked at us, Jesus' vision for each of you is that you could say, I am a member of God's family. I am a son or a daughter of God. And I, I don't know that words can carry all the substance of what that means other than to say, if you can imagine a human being having the highest status in the universe, it would be that. And every Sunday we... We meet and we hear the word and we try to understand what that means in a way that is meaningful in the everyday. And the one thing that I can tell people if they have become a part of that family is they don't have to worry anymore so much about how other people value you or what other people think about you or going through life with this sense that I can never measure up. God has taken all of that away. And he's given you and I a new opportunity to begin life on a more solid foundation where we can be confident and established in our new way of life in Jesus. Now, don't get me wrong. You shouldn't ignore what other people think. But you shouldn't allow that to define you and live in that prison anymore. You should be set free to be the person that God has designed you to be in the first place. Now, when we get in our Hemi Challenger, it could in reality be a Ford Pinto. The only difference is, it is a Hemi Challenger. It's real. And in this case, metaphorically speaking, Jesus is at the wheel. We're, we're going along with it. And when God looks at you, you may say, yeah, there's not much that's changed in me. But the truth is, when you go down into those baptismal waters, and you experience the death 
burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and you come back up, it is an epic, monumental event on the timeline of your life where God says to you, that is the day that defines your coming into my family. Now, I'm not saying that God can't, you know, do other ways, but I'm just saying it is a very clear scriptural uh, uh, defining moment. And if you've ever been baptized, maybe your experience has been like this. I'm just kind of a lowly sinner. I go down into the baptismal waters. Pastor puts me under. I come back up. Angels from heaven are singing. You can hear the angelic chorus. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. I feel transformed and radiant. And I go out, I go out, and I used to only be able to lift 50 pounds, and now I can lift 500 pounds. I am a super genius. Now I'm going to play the stock market, and I'm just going to kill it. No, no. You come out, and the truth is, you're pretty much the same. However, promises have been given that are just waiting to unfold in your life. The promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's our job to say, we welcome you, Holy Spirit, into our lives so that we can live the way God wants us to live. The promise is that you are adopted into God's family forever. But you may not feel it. It may not seem like it. But in principle, it's already been established. It's already a thing. And you'll spend the rest of your life asking yourself, i got to pinch myself. Is this real? Is it really real? Am I really a child of God? And you're going to spend the rest of your life tuning out the voices that would say otherwise. And you're going to spend the rest of your life coming a little bit closer to the reality of what's been promised to you to begin with. And I, I think about very wonderful human being that, that, that a family celebrated yesterday in Nancy Coffey. And her and her husband married for 70 years. Can you imagine they were just sort of inseparable? And I got to think there were a lot of things that happened in their lives that led to a change to where when she came to the end of it, celebrating her life wasn't really that important. What was important was other people. And she would tell you that. Because she knew where she was going. And it was time to move on. How do you get to that place in your thinking that you're so confident in who you are in Christ? That even death and everything that would scare you otherwise no longer seems to have that effect. I would say through a series of events in your life where you learn to trust God more and more as you went through them. Now, I was talking to Bob and Derek uh, the day after Nancy passed away, and we got on the weird topic of disciplining your kids. And I said, yeah, I, I swatted my kids on the bottom once, pulled them over on the side of the road, and then they went into about switches and willow branches with leaves on the end. And belts, and I'm like, oh, that's intense. 
And then Bob shared, yeah, one time I thought I was really going to get it. My dad bought a new tractor. And my question was, what's inside the engine of that tractor? So while his dad was away at work, got the wrenches out and just took her all apart. He said, I knew when dad came home. <laughs> he said, I didn't know how many, how many switches or what weapon he was going to use. And you know what my dad said? He said, you probably need to put it back together. But then he said, you know, I think my dad was proud of me because he saw that I had a mechanical aptitude and he wanted to feed it. Because I wouldn't expect that response at all. And it really is, and he discovered what was inside that engine, for sure. God's trying to discover what is inside of you, and the only way that we really know is when we're put into circumstances that test us. And those kind of turn to the surface based on our response, what kind of work God needs to do. Now with those two, I think there was more work to be done because Bob shortly thereafter went off to clean up Germany after the war. And in the process, got into an accident where 80% of his body was burned. And he was in recovery for months. And his bride, young bride, came over and Bob said, the Germans put some kind of ointment on me that they don't sell over here. And if you see Bob around, say, Bob, show me your scars. And he'll say, ain't got none. Some weird way, the scars just disappeared, which is unheard of. And the upshot was, he got his bride over there. That may be an extreme way to get your, your, your love interest to spend more time with you. Well, they must have spent some time together because Derek could technically be a German-American, and I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> well, if you see a couple like that whose lives unfold over that period of time, things begin to change. Like all of us, they start to grow up. They start to think about the Lord in different ways, in different situations, and they start to lean when it seems impossible that God will be there for us. And if you know those guys, you've heard their stories. And all of that to say that that's an example of some people that have gone on, well, at least one of them anyway, who've seen how the process works. Who have, through a period of time on the course of the timeline, have unfolded that reality of being a son and a daughter in Christ. And my hope as a pastor is that every one of us in this room, when it comes time to go, will be able to say, I'm good. I am good because I know who I am in Christ. And we'll also be able to say when we go through those impossible experiences, you know the ones where you lay up awake at night in bed and you're like, God's got me through a lot of things, but I have no idea how he's going to get me through this. You ever been there? I can tell you I have. And I still go there. And yet I can also say that how he pulled it off, I don't know. But he got me through whatever that last one was as well. And I'm looking at the book of 2 Corinthians and I'm thinking Paul is stopping at a place where we have to hit the pause button on our lives and ask the question, who, who am I? 
Who am I now that I'm a follower of Jesus? And if you are not a follower of Jesus, perhaps the question is, who does Jesus want me to be? And the nice thing about being in my role is that I've seen lives change over time. One gal who was sitting near the back in the last service, first time I met her, she didn't know anything about God, didn't know anything about church, was very quiet and kind of scared. Her, her, her last parent died, and she just started coming to church out of pain. And then I saw the pain morph into sort of an embracing of the things that she was hearing. And the next thing I know, she's starting to go to the nursing home and pray for people. And then the next thing I know, she's praying for a brother who is a, who's an atheist who had nothing to do with her, and all of a sudden he's warming up to her and even the things about church. And I'm thinking, God, I never would have saw that coming with her. If you were in the first service today, I was asking for praises, and she blurted out, I'm so thankful that so-and-so was able to make it today. That shy woman from four years ago, five years ago, Never would have had the courage to do that. There's another another gal I met. I talked to her. I didn't talk to her. She came with a friend. She couldn't even really speak. And she was befriended by some people around her. And it'll dry, I promise. And and all of a sudden she starts to tune in. And then she starts to talk. And then she starts to find joy. And then she goes through some trials. And I'm thinking, oh, that, there she goes. That we're going to lose her. And she's like, no, God's going to help me. And he did. And he keeps doing that. And I keep saying, wow, those kind of things go so underreported. Yet they are exactly what it means to walk into your new identity in Christ. And I just want to tell people along the way who are starting to lose heart. Don't lose heart. It's a weird chapter that you're going through right now, trust me. But this too shall pass. And God's got more story to write in your life if you just trust Him along the way. Now in this stop that we're making in our Hemi Challenger with Jesus behind the wheel... We are, in principle, not driving the Ford Pinto anymore, but we're driving what I think is the finest road vehicle ever made, but that's my opinion. And we're doing it in a suit that says, I am a new creation in Christ. I am a son or a daughter bought with the blood of Christ alongside Jesus along the way. And here he's telling us, as we read through chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, that there's a change that needs to occur inside of you so that what happens, that, that, begins to, that begins to flow into things outside of you. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm going to pick up this verse here where he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forgiven. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus 
also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. I'm going to stop right there for a second, because Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing this information in a letter to a church that's about 150 miles away. And he's got some co-workers, and they've gone through some pretty rough stuff trying to make sure that the gospel is getting out. The government's upset about it. The Jewish people are upset about it. There are people even in the church who are upset about what Paul and his cohorts are doing to try to change the status quo. Basically, Paul's got pretty much everybody mad at him. And he's feeling the pressure of it on all these fronts. And he said in the first chapter, I feel almost like I'm being crushed to death. I feel like I'm on the edge of despair. I feel like it can't get any darker. He says this is what he's feeling. Have you ever felt that way? I don't think we're strangers to those experiences, are we? They're pretty common sometimes. All too common. But Paul didn't say those things define me. He just says, I'm, I, I'm feeling it. But i got to tell you something else. In chapter 4, he says, because of who I am in Christ, it's not breaking me. It's not destroying me. I'm perplexed. I'm confused. But it's not defining who I am. It's not changing anything about how I do what I'm going to do. It's there. But for some reason, because I'm in the car with Jesus, we're just going to keep on going. And so he does. And as he's writing this, he's saying, we're going to keep on going, even if it means that some of these difficult things are going to keep happening, so that, through the good news, you can live, you can thrive, you can take whatever it is that life is dealing you that is so hard and so overwhelming and so crushing, and you can know that the gospel of Jesus has within it everything you need for that experience. He will help you through whatever it is you're facing. He will work all things together for good. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. It's his way of saying to each of us, we've carried this message with us so that you guys can live, even if it seems like we're dying. And one thing that Paul has sort of worked up about was the cult of personality. And I'm just worked up about this. Maybe that helps. I don't know. I'm, I'm a little challenged here. Um, because he lived in a day, I'm sorry guys, um, he lived in a day when celebrity was a big thing. And he wrote these letters that were so awesome, but when he showed up, people say that he was, he was well, he was kind of short, kind of pudgy, maybe losing his hair, no offense to anybody who's going through that as a guy thing. And he, well, he's not that impressive of a speaker. And they're making a big deal about it, almost to the point where they're saying, you don't really matter, Paul. And Paul's saying, mm, I don't know if I agree with that. And it's not an ego thing for Paul. It's the fact that we're not using that as a measure here. 
what we're using as a measure here is really defined less by appearances and more by what's going on in the soul. You know, that part of who we are that is just kind of naked before God, but we protect around other people. Paul is saying, yeah, that's really where my concerns lie with you. And honestly, it's where my concerns lie with each of you and even myself as a pastor. Because we do kind of project an image of who we are to protect the soul, that, the, that intimate part of who we are. We don't let people get too close. And sometimes when we get too close, we get defensive. And for Paul, he was getting too close to these guys. And it would be fair to say that as he did, it was upsetting. Anybody here like change? A little bit? It depends. <laughs> if it's too personal? No. And I can tell you as I get older, habits and routines, they're important because I don't have to think about that stuff anymore and I don't really want to change them anymore. But if I have to change, it gets harder and harder as I get older. I'd be the first to, to indicate that. But Paul is saying to each of the people in that church, you're unsettled, you're angry at me, and perhaps even not getting along as well with one another, probably for this reason. You're projecting onto each of these things the frustration you're having about what God is doing in your life. Because we don't like God to meddle with our soul, do we, or our lives. But if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to move from a Ford Pinto to the proverbial Hemi Challenger, it's going to take some work. And God's going to look at each of us and he's going to say, I do love you the way you are, but there's so much about you that needs to grow, that needs to change and, and even repent, even turn away from, so that you can become those beautiful people that I just described a minute ago with those two ladies I mentioned, or the husband and the wife who lived together as a married couple for 70 years and experienced their own transformation and then legacy of influence. Wouldn't that be cool if each of you, at the end of it all, when other people are reflecting on your life and say, yeah, they made a difference. Yeah, they showed love. Yeah, they cared. Yeah, they had a good heart. Yeah, God changed them. I mean, that really is what God expects because I, I believe that when Nancy went the other night in heaven, there were these words. Well done, good and faithful servant. And that is the goal, to be in tune. The Apostle Paul is looking at a church that's kind of full of pretense, kind of posturing a little bit, kind of looking on the surface and not dealing with the things that they need to deal with. And he's taking a lot of abuse for it. Yet, he's looking at all of that and he's saying, I don't want you guys to take this personal. I'm not taking it personal. But he goes on to say this. Let's, let's, let's continue on. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. That's Psalm 115, by the way. And you should read it because it's 
beautifully patterned this passage. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. We believe that with all of our heart because... It is for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being changed or renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient or temporary but the things that are unseen are eternal let's show the graphic of the scales if you take, took the substance of everything that has been made by God and you put it on a set of scales that balance like that the whole universe, and perhaps every penny challenger on the planet, if you want to go there. And you said, how does it measure up to the weight of the glory of God? And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't even budge the scale. But what's so significant about that, if you remember at the beginning of the sermon, he said we are like jars of clay. There's a treasure inside of us. And that treasure is the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the presence of God was the glory of God. And God is at work in our lives, but we have to wake up every day and say, God, I know you're at work in my life. Fill me with your presence so that I can live a life that reflects your glory. It won't happen automatically. We have to tune into that and consent to that reality every day. I know we can go on autopilot, but like anything, anytime you go on autopilot, it tends to kind of run out of gas. And so it takes work. It's like starting a, a little fire in your backyard. You've got to keep putting logs on it or else it'll just go out. And when Paul says, you're like a jar of clay, meaning that by comparison on the surface, we're all kind of, well, we're all prone to crumble and, and, and break. Let me just close with this story. During World War II, there was a, there was a, a he was an Oxford uh, president of a school. He was a uh, chairman of a bank. He was knighted as Sir Oliver Franks. And he was given the responsibility of uh, of sharing vital communication between the United Kingdom and the United States during the Second World War. And the role that he had was an ambassador. He was given like a little briefcase called the uh, attaché, and every important document that needed to be transferred from across the ocean from the UK to the United States was contained within that, and everybody knew it. They knew that that was a designated satchel for important information that no one could look at except for the recipients. Which if you're fighting a war, you're thinking, now if we can just get a hold of that thing, hey, it's all good. We'll figure out the plan and we'll subvert it. He had one particular document that was of utmost importance that needed to come over and, and it needed to be 
transport in a way that no one would even know that it had been transmitted. And you know what he did? He just grabbed an ordinary envelope, wrote out what needed to be written out, put it in that ordinary envelope, took a stamp, licked it, slapped it on there, went down to the post office and just dropped it in the mail. And you think, why would you do that? And that's the whole point. Is no one is even going to consider the fact that that important of a piece of information is ever going to go through um, that route to that end. Not to, not to say the post office doesn't do a stellar job. It's more the question of why would you do such an ordinary thing in such an ordinary way with such an extraordinary piece of information? Why? Because if you, if you get a letter in the mail, do you look at the envelope and you say, oh man, this is an awesome envelope. It's so cool. Look at that. Put in the light, look at it like that, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, Pinterest has really changed that game. But there's some pretty cool looking envelopes. Most of the time you're like, yeah, what's in there? And you throw it out because it's contents that are the significant thing. And then what Paul is saying essentially is, in a lot of ways, our bodies are kind of like that here on earth. They're here to serve a purpose. They're here to carry something of utmost significance. And God saw fit that the most important thing of all, the message of the gospel, had to come through ordinary, everyday means. Like you and I. You and I are the containers for that beautiful piece of information. And that's sort of the genius of the whole thing. Is that in the process, not only are we carrying something so incredibly valuable and weighty, but the weird thing is, even in the end, the envelope gets transformed into something incredible. And it's a bonus. I can't tell you in words, the words I have can't carry the freight of the weight of glory, what that means. I can only just begin to scratch the surface. But I can tell you this. If you pay careful attention, you'll see the imprint of God at work in your life. You'll see Him orchestrating things in your relationships in ways that you hadn't considered if you're just asking the question, God, show me how you're at work. Because I believe we, we, unless we're asking the question, we're not going to see. And what the Apostle Paul was hoping to get the minds of the people in this church to see was that something significant is happening here, much greater than the, than the surface level stuff that you're getting hung up on. And it really centers on the weight of the glory of Christ at work in our lives as we have been called to be sons and daughters in Him. And not to live in a way that it's a spiritual versus a physical but live in a way that says, in the here and now, it's not as important as what's yet to come. And I just come full circle back to our friend Nancy Coffey. She didn't want an elaborate funeral gathering. Because her words to me was, there's more important work to be done. I didn't know what to say because I, I felt like, but we need to give honor to whom honors do, for sure. But in her mind, it's like, I'm getting ready to shift gears here. 
There's stuff to be done. I told Derek, I said, I feel so bad I can't gather with you guys because I've got a, I've got a wedding with, um, with some other people. And he said, that is what my mom would want you to do. And it's almost like that perspective of eternity looking backwards helps us keep our heads clear. And what we hope is that we can, we can end like that and not wind up somewhere else accidentally. Would you bow with me? Father, as we just begin to open up the new identity that we have in Christ, by seeing in principle that we have been called into a family that has you at the head, and we are sons and daughters before any other identity is given to us. Whether it's a government document, or whether it's just a, a name that we've given each other. We know those are very secondary to the new name you've written in heaven for each of us. I pray, Father, for everyone here that they would connect the dots between the new identity that we have in Christ and the circumstances that we go through that churn up to the surface those things that you're changing. Help us to be patient with you and with one another as you transform us and as you increasingly empty our lives of those things that used to spark joy and replace them with the one thing that provides the greatest joy, and that is your son Jesus. I pray, Father, that if there is a vessel here that does not have Jesus in him or her, that you would soften hearts enough to see what it is that you're speaking into their lives. And I pray that you use us as a body to be those people that would come alongside and help to embrace one another in that new family that we have in you. Thank you, Lord, for what you've given us. And thank you for the grace that made it possible through a bloodstained cross. Bless everyone here as we assimilate this into our lives and as we become your people. And just help us, Father, as we continue to walk towards you and with you and in you. In Jesus' name, amen.